0: There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, that, of course, is Tom Lear, who every week regales us with his wonderful rendition of the Element Song. Uh, Tom Lear was a mathematics uh, professor uh, at uh, Harvard. He's still alive, actually, and he still occasionally sings. And he came up with a number of uh, very, very clever songs uh, tuned to Gilbert and Sullivan uh, music. And uh, of course, my favorite is the element song, which you have been hearing here Uh, for 43 years as I uh, begin the show. That's a pretty long time. I like to say it's the longest running radio show on chemistry in the history of the world, which it may well be, but of course it may also be the only such show. All right, anyway, as you probably know, when I am not here talking to you on Sunday afternoons, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society where we try to separate sense from nonsense, facts from myth, and uh, of course that these days is more than a full-time job. But as I usually do, starting out the show here on Sundays, I uh, ask a couple of questions, get your mind sort of warmed up. (laughs) And uh, obviously uh, if you can answer them without Googling, uh, great, but I don't say that you can't Google because these days, of course, That's how we get a lot of our information. But I do try to come up with questions that are maybe somewhat uh, challenging, and I've got one I think may fall into that category. Mm -hmm. All right, so here we go with the first of today's questions. Why in the early days of motion pictures, now we're talking before the talkies, many actors would have to wear sunglasses after indoor filming, And uh, that was in order to relieve their sore eyes. So why was that? They would be inside in a studio filming and uh, they'd have to wear, when they were due filming, they'd have to wear sunglasses because of their sore eyes. What was going on? If you know the answer, give us a call, 514-790-800. Uh, that is also where you can text your questions at five one four eight hundred five one four eight hundred. Now for a second question, <clears throat> what happened at Woolsthorpe Manor? What happened at Woolsthorpe Manor? Woolsthorpe—that's W O O L S T H O R P E. I want to know what happened there. Once more, if you know the answer to that question, five one four seven nine zero zero eight hundred. Text your answers to 514-800. And of course, uh, if you have any questions about uh, any area of science that I may be able to shed some light on, that's the same phone number and the same text number. So 514-790-800 and 514-800 for the text. Also, as you know, uh, in the uh, morning on the trivia show, which also has been going on for a very long time on on CJD, uh, I kind of chime in uh, at roughly eleven oh five every Sunday morning with um, a question, and mostly it gets answered on the trivia show. Sometimes it, it doesn't, but that's rare. Anyway, this morning it did get answered, and um, I um, I posed a question about the link between Thomas Edison's light bulb and the Ocean Gate disaster that, of course, we heard so much about and talked so much about this past week. Uh, Several people quickly came up with that answer. And the answer is carbon fiber. And uh, when uh, Edison first made his uh, light bulb uh, in um, 1880, uh, the filament that he used was made of uh, bamboo threads that had been heated to a very high temperature. And uh, when you do that, you drive off all of the atoms except carbon. And the carbon atoms kind of fuse together into a lattice that we call graphite. And this is a three-dimensional lattice of carbon atoms joined together in six-membered rings. And that makes for very, very strong fiber uh, Edison of course didn't know about the strength of the fiber that's not what he was interested in he was interested in in making the light bulb using it to to uh, uh, as a resistance that, and uh, the fiber would glow when electric current was passed uh, passed through it however much later we found out that these uh, uh graphite fibers, when treated in a proper way, heated to a very high temperature and stretched, uh, they would become extremely strong. Uh, Indeed, the um, tensile strength of carbon fiber is about 20 times that of steel, and that's pretty impressive. And if you take this carbon fiber and you weave it into a cloth, And then you impregnate that cloth with uh, an epoxy resin. And there are many different kinds of epoxy resins. Epoxy is the term for uh, chemical class of molecules. And uh, you can then take this and you can shape it, uh, mold it and then autoclave it and uh, it will retain whatever shape that you had. And that's how you make panels, for example, for F1 cars, make tennis rackets and golf clubs and and, uh, pickleball paddles, uh, bicycle frames. uh, I mean, all kinds of things that today are made of uh, carbon fiber. Uh, Actually, you know, when we use that term carbon fiber, that's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, because it doesn't really refer to the carbon threads. It refers to the fabric that was woven with the carbon threads and then impregnated with a resin that is then molded into the final shape upon heat uh, treatment. So anyway, this stuff is very, very strong. And this is why it was used to make the submergible uh, that, That was used for uh, Ocean Gate's uh, journey to the Titanic. And, uh, you know, down there, the pressure is tremendous. It's about 400 times that of atmospheric pressure. And uh, uh, you really need some strong material in order to withstand that. So that's why uh, it was chosen. Well, was it strong enough? Uh, i don't know if we will ever find out what what happened uh, down there. I mean we know uh from the wreckage that there was an implosion uh which means that there was somehow a breach of of um of you know of the side but what caused that was was it little micro fissures that had built up uh, because uh this uh <clears throat> submergible had been used many many times before and it had gone to great depths so there might have been micro fissures that eventually gave gave way uh, unfortunately we will we'll not find out i, I don't think just uh, you know what happened but uh, that being said in uh, carbon fiber is still an amazing amazing material because it is so light and it is uh, so strong <clears throat> i mean virtually all of an f1 car is made of, uh, of carbon fiber and of course in that case uh, lightness is imperative because the lighter the car is the uh, less uh, uh, gas you have to use right and, and the easier it is to move ahead the less push that you require and uh, <clears throat> uh, obviously uh, it's used in airplanes uh, because of its light weight, and the uh, Boeing was the first uh, company to use uh, carbon fiber to make its airplanes, where it replaced a lot of aluminum. Aluminum, of course, is also very light. But uh, today, uh, virtually every airplane has at least some parts that are made of uh, of carbon fiber. Uh, I'm sure that in the coming days, we will hear more about uh, what could have happened to that uh, uh, submergible. But uh, what we know is that there was an implosion. And uh, uh, this is something that would have happened uh, suddenly. And uh, the uh, five unfortunate people inside would have uh, not felt anything because the pressure down there is so tremendous that uh, uh, they would have been immediately uh, squashed. So it's, it, it wouldn't have been a question of, of drowning. Uh, it would have been the tremendous impact of the uh, inrushing water with the uh, unbelievable weight, the whole weight of the ocean on top of them. And uh, so uh, it's a, a terrible uh, accident. And of course, there's going to be much talk about this, whether or not there was enough checking of that um, vehicle. Uh, X-rays taken, for example, periodically to look for microfissures, uh, because there's already some talk about, you know, that, that not every safety standard was uh, adhered uh, to. So we'll find out some more, but at least now you know a little bit about the connection between Thomas Edison and the Ocean Gate uh, tragedy. Okay, I think we have Kenny on the line. Kenny, hi, Doctor Doctor Joe, how are you? Okay, I feel like so, I smoke in here. A lot of smoke today, yeah. Yes, so I hear. I, I must say I don't notice it sitting inside here, but I noticed uh, I that. i have just wondering. I think I'm going to all right, do you have an answer to one of my questions or what yeah first question about the uh, early days about the emotional victors yes yeah the, the answer is pink eye is caused by a virus or bacteria nope no and why why do you think that that would have been uh, a problem during the early days of movie making? Probably the uh, eyes got irritated or uh, dry eyes but most people were in inside the uh filming uh studio yeah. No, interesting, but you're barking up the wrong tree with that one. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, thanks anyway. All right, we got also a text question from Nick. What was the source of energy used on the sub? Well, actually, it wasn't a submarine; it's a, 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 a submergible, or you know, that's the term that is most commonly used for this contraption that that uh, went down to the Titanic. Uh, The the, uh, energy is electrical. It has batteries. And uh, there are, I think, four uh, small uh, propellers uh, on on this thing. And that's what propels it forward and they can be tilted to go up and down. It has no navigation equipment itself. Um, All of the navigation is done from the surface. They get instructions from the surface about where to go and uh, the, the, um, in some ways, this is a pretty primitive uh, kind of a, uh, a contraption, because as, uh, you know, as we saw in many uh, film clips, the control is, is done with a little handheld device, like what you play games on the uh, television uh, with. And uh, but they can make it go forward and, and uh, you know up and down using those propellers which are powered by uh, by batteries. All right, so I'm still looking for the answer to my question. What happened at Woolsthorpe Manor, Woolsthorpe Manor? And why in the early days of motion pictures, many actors would have to wear sunglasses after indoor filming, and the reason was to relieve their uh, sore eyes. I also had an interesting question posed to me. Uh, I was chatting to someone uh, about tattoos and uh, I was telling them that uh, I had come across a book, a very interesting book uh, that has uh, a couple hundred tattoos of, that scientists uh, have tattooed their bodies with. And uh, it's very interesting because uh, the book has a little story about each of these tattoos, why they use them. Uh, it was either, you know, because it had something to do with their research or something that uh, had stimulated their uh, interest in science early on or something particular to, to their life. And, uh, you know, these range all the way from, from things like uh, the uh, DNA, you uh, spiral and uh, you know you some people have einstein's equation various animals birds so it's it's pretty interesting but anyway i was um, asked um, that if i were to use this sort of concept and get a tattoo myself what i would uh, get tattooed on on my body well uh, first of all uh, i wouldn't get a tattoo it's just not my thing and uh, I uh, not, not necessarily because of uh, toxicity concerns, although there are some toxicity concerns. I mean, some of the, the pigments that are used uh, are not particularly attractive in terms of a toxicological profile. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I just, I don't like the concept, but it's sort of interesting to, to think about so i did think about it but uh you know something in the scientific realm that has had a a a big impact uh, on me and uh, if i would have to choose a single uh, molecule i think i would choose movine movine that's the uh, purple color that was accidentally discovered uh, in uh, 1856 by william henry perkin as a young student, he was um, searching for a synthetic method to make quinine, which in those days, of course, was much desired um, because it was the only thing that could treat malaria. And the only place that it, it um, from which it was available was from the uh, bark of a tree, the cinchona tree, that grew in Peru, and uh, it had to be imported into Europe, and there wasn't enough of it, so there was a search to, to you know, see if it could be made synthetically, and uh, his uh, research director, uh, Felix Hoffman, had worked with uh, petroleum distillates and with coal tar, and he had found a chemical in, in coal tar called aniline, which uh, seemed to have a a chemical composition similar to quinine, except that it didn't have any oxygen in it. And Hoffman suggested to Young-Perkin to to try some oxidizing agent to see if he could convert aniline to uh, quinine. Well, of course, with what we know in chemistry now, we know that this was an impossible task. These are completely different molecules, but they didn't know that in those days. Anyway, uh, Young Perkin tried and tried and never got anywhere and uh, frustrated, he once threw his uh, chemicals into the sink. And uh, all of a sudden he noticed a, a purple, or as it came to be called, mauve color that developed. And when he looked into what had happened here, he found that uh, there had been a a chemical reaction using one of the reagents uh, of his uh, attempted synthesis of of quinine. And he sort of backtracked, figured out what had been going on and uh, was able to produce another sample of this this color. And that was a big deal back then because uh, this was the first time that a, a synthetic color had been made uh, before that time if you wanted to color fabrics you had to rely on whatever nature would provi- provide you know the, the root of the matter plant for red indigo for blue etc but here was a novel color that uh, differed from anything available in in nature so it was a pretty interesting uh, discovery and uh, not only did it lead to other synthetic dyes being developed But uh, of course, it also raised a curtain on the pharmaceutical industry. Because if you could make uh, color substances, dyes in the laboratory, well, then you could make other substances as well. And uh, this was really beginning of the pharmaceutical industry. And many of the the big pharmaceutical companies like like, uh, Bayer and Merck, uh, originally started out as dye companies in Germany. Germany, of course, was the hotbed of science back in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. So this particular molecule called Movin had a tremendous impact on, uh, on the history of science. And uh, it also had a big impact on you know my teaching because I talked about it in class all the time uh, because of the nature of the accidental discovery and uh, what it led to so i'd be tempted to to do that to get a, a tattoo of Mauveen if uh, ever i did get a a tattoo which i don't think i would uh, i would do so that would be a, a candidate and then uh, you know i thought about it uh, uh some more in terms of things that have had an you know impact on on my on my life and uh, three st- colored strands of rope which could be also uh, woven into a nice design as a tattoo. I think that would also be something that I would consider. Why? Because to me, it represents uh, a magic trick that really began my career. And I know that I've told this story many times, and this was back when I was in grade grade six, and uh, I was at a birthday party where a magician did a trick where he took three colored ropes and blended them magically into one, uh, he said he was using a magic chemical. And uh, of course I knew it wasn't a magic chemical, but it made me go to the library and to start looking up about chemistry and about magic. And I developed an interest uh, in both of those back then. So that would be another candidate for a tattoo, (laughs) a little, a set of three magic ropes of different uh, colors. Anyway, that's just something interesting to think about. Well, I got sort of a correct answer for my question about why in the early days of motion pictures, before the talkies, many actors would have to wear sunglasses after indoor filming because they had sore eyes. And uh, the answer that I got is, because of the lighting that was used. Well, that's true, I was looking for something a bit more specific. But indoors uh, filming uh, in the early 1900s was difficult because the film was relatively insensitive. You needed a lot of light in order to expose the film. And the only light that was bright enough in those days were arc lamps. Now, these uh, had an interesting history. They were first introduced in the early 1800s by Humphrey Davy, the brilliant English chemist, uh, <clears throat> who had uh, uh, found that if you put two carbon electrodes close to each other and attach them to a battery, then a spark would jump in between the two electrodes. And if the voltage was high enough, and he managed to get a high enough voltage by uh, by putting 2000 batteries in sequence, uh, then you would get a, a Uh, continuous uh, glow in between the electrodes and this was an electric arc and uh, this is a Uh, a lamp, the electric arc lamp, that was the first uh, municipal lighting uh, used in the late 1800s, long before light bulbs. The problem with it uh, was that uh, the carbon would vaporize from the electrodes and then the gap between them would become too big and uh, no longer were the sparks able to kind of bridge, bridge the gap. But anyway, arc lamps were very, very bright, and they were used in spotlights, they were used in searchlights, and they were used inside for movies. The trouble was, which at that time, of course, they did not know, that the arc lamp also produced a great deal of ultraviolet light. And that is what irritated the eyes of the actors and it irritated them so much that when they you know, came off of the set, their eyes were still burning, very sensitive to light and they had to wear uh, sunglasses. The problem was then solved in a very simple way. They just put an ordinary pane of uh, glass, like in a window in front of the arc lamp because ultraviolet light does not pass through window glass. So that solved the problem, but uh, uh, anyway, pretty soon uh, the light bulb had been perfected, and uh, you could certainly light up uh, without having to use uh, uh, arc lamps. And uh, you know the fact that uh, ultraviolet light does not pass through uh, windows is apparent to anyone who has the sunglasses. That or the regular glasses that become sunglasses when exposed to ultraviolet light, they become dark. That's very interesting technology. But in any case, uh, you know that they don't work inside of a car because the UV light, which is needed in order to change the uh, color of the glass, uh, does not pass through the uh, car window. So anyway, yeah, so that was sort of a a major... uh, Major, you know, uh, development uh, uh, in—I uh, I, I, guess—in you know, film technology when they were able to switch from the arc lights to regular lights. I had another interesting question texted in. Uh, why is it that uh, Dawn dishwashing soap is so superior at breaking up grease? Well, to tell you the truth, I never really knew that Dawn was superior to other dishwashing soaps. Uh, I've found all dishwashing soaps, uh, in fact, uh, work well, Uh, but uh, I just had a look at the ingredients in uh, Dawn dishwashing soap, and uh, there are uh, 21 ingredients uh, that I've (laughs) counted. That's a lot of ingredients for uh, dishwashing soap. I don't see anything in there that is uh, uh, really different from what you would find in, in uh, just about all dishwashing products. The main surfactant that that is responsible for the cleaning is sodium lauryl sulfate, and uh, the second one is sodium loreth sulfate. And these are the classic ones that you will find in any dishwashing detergent because they are so adept at breaking up grease. These are molecules called surfactants, where one end of the molecule dissolves in water, the other end dissolves in uh, in oil. And uh, when you rinse, because of this bond that you form between the water and the oil, the, the water washes away the uh, the oil. Now, there are a number of other surfactants in there uh, as, as well, but none that I, I see that are any different from what you would find um, elsewhere. You know, of course, you have many other ingredients. You have some sodium chloride that acts as a thickener. Uh, you have fragrances. You have methyl which is a preservative. Uh, you don't want bacteria growing in there. Although I see also that they have uh, chloroxylenol, which is an antibacterial agent. And it says it decreases bacteria on the skin. Well, I don't think you need uh, this antibacterial agent in there. I don't know why they put it in there. I mean, just watch. If your hands are immersed in this, you're not going to have any kind of con- contamination. Um, other than that, there are a number of solvents that, that uh, of course, uh, make the, uh, give the thing the right consistency, right right pourability. Uh, there's, um uh, uh, and there's phenoxyethanol, which is another uh, uh, grease-cutting agent that also acts as a, a preservative. You have um, polypropylene glycol, uh, which uh, adjusts the viscosity. Uh, so there, you know, there are a lot of components here, but I don't know of anything that is, is really different. Uh, there's tetrosodium glutamate diacetate, um, which uh, they call a water softener and uh, water softener means that it uh, binds to calcium and magnesium and that is because these minerals present in the water interfere with the activity of the detergent so i i i absolutely see that this would be a good product Uh, it would cut the grease as a very effective uh, detergent but I don't see any reason why it would be any better than the numerous other uh, liquid dishwashing uh, products uh, out on the market so um there you go i uh, that's about the only answer i can uh, i can give to to that one uh there it may be uh, that It's more concentrated. I I don't know. I'd have to look into that so that you have to use less than than you would use other detergents. But that doesn't make it uh, more effective. Okay. So anyway, that's uh, that's the story with Don Dishwashing Detergent. I'm still looking for the answer to what happened at Woolsthorpe Manor. What happened at Woolstorm Manor and I give you a, a, a clue there uh, Woocester manor is located in England and uh, it is an important historical place that's about as much of a clue that I'm willing to give you on um, on that one so I want to know what is why is Wosterp manner remarkable and why are there tourists who are visiting that uh, all the time Uh, i want to also talk to you a little bit about something that they refer to as non-chemical antiperspirants well as you can imagine uh, just that terminology kind of irritates me Uh, why because anytime that you hear this expression non-chemical The only thing that is non-chemical is a vacuum. Everything else in the world, of course, is made of chemicals. And as I will never get sick and tired of telling you, chemicals are not good or bad, they are just things. They don't make any decisions. They are the building blocks of all matter. It's people who make decisions about how to use chemicals. Not always the right decision. But anyway, I want to tell you about something that is being advertised as a non-chemical antiperspirant. Jerry has come through with a correct answer for Woolsthorpe Manor. Indeed, it was the birthplace in 1642 and the family home of Isaac Newton. Well, Newton returned there in 1666 when Cambridge University was closed due to the plague. And it was at Woolsthorpe Manor that he performed many of his most famous experiments. And of course, uh, his work on optics, and that's where supposedly he passed light through a prism and saw it uh, break down into different colors of the rainbow. And that is also the place where Newton, observing an apple fall from a tree, was inspired to formulate his law of universal gravitation. Now, is that just a story, or is there some truth to that? Well, actually, Newton himself recounted to his contemporary William Stukeley how an apple tree in the orchard inspired him to work on his law of universal gravitation. And interestingly enough, uh, using a technique called dendrochronology, which can date trees, uh they find that one of the trees in the orchard at Woolstorp Manor is 400 years old at least and uh this uh, therefore is now uh talked about as the tree from which Newton saw the apple fall so it some truth to the story, but probably being stretched uh, a little bit. But anyway, the tree is now attended by gardeners. There's a security fence around it. Uh, and it has become a place for interested uh, tourists to visit. Um, let me just check what... Uh, another interesting question that... that. Um, came in from Lauren. if everything is made out of chemicals, does that mean we can create anything? Uh, You know what, in theory, I would say yes. In practice, uh, obviously there are some very severe difficulties because uh, there are all kinds of complicated molecules, um, especially present in nature and the human body that uh, are you know, uh, are very complex and would be very difficult to synthesize, but in theory, they could be. I mean, there are some unbelievably difficult molecules, complex molecules that have been synthesized. For example, uh, mm-hmm. things like vitamin B12. Uh, if you want to, to you know, be astounded, take a look, uh, Google uh, vitamin B12 molecular structure on the internet. And you'll see how complex that is. And yet it was synthesized by uh, Robert Woodward, who is probably the greatest uh, synthetic organic chemist who ever lived at, at Harvard uh, University. And um, there are many other uh, such molecules which are you know, uh, unbelievably complex that can be synthesized, including large fragments of DNA and RNA and proteins. Uh, those today are quite relatively easily uh, made in the uh, laboratory. So uh, yeah, the answer to that is if uh, we, we can indeed synthesize anything, at least in, uh, in theory. Okay, well, let me get back to my non-chemical antiperspirant. Uh, I come across this because uh, what I saw being sold in, in a store, is called a natural crystal. And uh, it uh, had a label on it. It said, uh, uh, this natural crystal is made of natural mineral salts and it's completely free of perfumes and chemicals. So what is this business about being free of chemicals? It's, everything's made of chemicals, it's not a dirty word. But unfortunately, far too often, people connect chemical with poison or t- toxin. Of course, that crystal is made of chemicals. Specifically, it is made of potassium aluminum sulfate. What is it? It's a deodorant stone, and it is being sold as an alternative to chemical antiperspirants. Well, we all sweat, don't we? Uh, That's, of course, how our body regulates temperature. Uh, Each of our armpits has about 25,000 sweat glands, and they spew out moisture uh, when, activated you know by our activity and uh, there are some fatty substances that also come out through the uh, glands and it is these fatty substances that are responsible for odor well actually it's bacteria on the surface of the skin that are responsible because they're the ones that digest the fats and convert them to a variety of malodorous compounds like butyric acid and that's the delightful fragrance of rancid butter Another one of these enchanting compounds is 4 octanoic acid. Uh, that's probably the one that Catullus, the Roman poet, was referring to when he talked about a fierce goat being kept under the arms. Since most humans do not want to smell like a fierce goat, a huge market for antiperspirants and deodorants has arisen. And the actual market for antiperspirants in North America, believe it or not, over a billion and a half Dollars every year. That's a lot of money. Well, antiperspirants, unlike deodorants, actually stop us from sweating. The active ingredient usually are aluminum compounds because they act as astringents, substances with the ability to draw together soft organic tissue, so they close the pores. There's a secondary effect as well. On reaction with water, aluminum hydroxide gels are formed, which can plug up pores. Commercially, antiperspirants mostly contain aluminum chlorhydrate, compound that has caused quite a frenzy on the internet. There are claims of aluminum compounds causing Alzheimer's disease, more recently breast cancer. A scare that is going around describes how aluminum compounds are absorbed through the armpit and deposited in breast tissue. The claim is that this is what has caused the epidemic of breast cancer. This is totally unsubstantiated. Uh, But it is these kind of worries that have led to the marketing of what they call non-chemical antiperspirants. Of course, the crystal antiperspirant is just as much a chemical as any bottle of antiperspirant. Now, I'm not suggesting therefore that it is dangerous because I don't think antiperspirants are dangerous, but there may be a reason to curtail our use of antiperspirants. Some of the substances we secrete through our armpits may have aphrodisiac properties, not the goat smells. Actually, those are more like pig smells. And Drostenol, which is a pig pheromone, is found in human armpits, and some have suggested it is a human pheromone as well. So maybe all that use of antiperspirants has led to less loving in the world. And of course, we know that there is a less loving in the world, right? So what can you do with the crystal antiperspirants? Well, it may work, I don't think it will work as well as a commercial antiperspirant, but you can rub that crystal in your armpit and uh, uh, it may do something because it does uh, contain an aluminum compound. But if not that, uh, it makes for a great paperweight, which is exactly what uh, I'm using it for. So there's a a little story for you guys about uh, sweating and the so-called non-chemical antiperspirants. And that's the last story that I can tell you today because once again, we have just scooted through the hour, haven't we? But I hope that you are more educated now than you were an hour ago. And we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life, comes out just right.